So we've been thinking. So we've been thinking. The podcast. In past episodes, we've heard Audrey Waters discuss how technology embeds values. When you adopt a new technology, you may be unknowingly adopting the values embedded within it. If that's true, then, making changes from traditional patterns of work and education might require the construction of tech tools and infrastructure built around modern values. We also heard Will Richardson discuss the need for schools to really, really know what they believe in and then to make sure that what they do truly reflects those beliefs. So I set out to find, if there exists somewhere, someone that's building a technology grounded in values that supports modern approaches to learning so that they could tell their story. What if there was a company that valued a standard-based world, where students have autonomy and agency to build their own learning experiences? What type of tools would a teacher need to be the lead learner in a classroom that focused on individual instruction? Today's guest left his previous job to join a small startup that's looking to do just that. He shares his values and how his company, Otis, is trying to construct an environment that supports them. My name is Eric Patnodes, and I am the director of strategic initiatives at a company called Otis. Um, I like to think what I do is more than just a, my title and position at a company. Uh, you know, I'm a father, I'm a husband, uh, and, and more importantly, I think an educator, even though I don't work in the schools anymore, um, I, I still view myself as an educator. Absolutely. And quite honestly, the reason you're on the show is because of a conversation that we had about the problems and issues and beliefs that you have about education. So let's get into that a little bit and kind of give people an idea of what I'm talking about by asking you our opening question. So what have you been thinking about in education? Well, lately, you know, few people know that I, uh, before I went into education, I was a commodities trader at the Chicago board of trade. I used to trade live cattle futures in the pit. Um, I then transitioned into going back to school to get my degree in special education and um, eventually became um, a teacher, instructional technologist, adjunct. I was an education strategist for a Fortune 200 company. And now um, I work at a small startup of 28 people. So all that being said, what I've really been thinking a lot about lately is just being immersed in all of these different careers and, and work environments I can't help but wonder how long before we reach a breaking point in our current model of education where it becomes completely irrelevant. And what I mean by that is that we, you know, we, we learn more and more every day about the future of work, yet there's a glacial pace of change in education that simply cannot keep up. So if we wait until the change, however you know you want to define it, until that change in work actually happens, um, is it going to be too late to make that change in education? And and that because I am a father and because you know I do work in education, it's something that's really top of mind for me and and something that I love having conversations about. You know, you you talk about the your role as a father and I always tell my kids when they ask the work that I'm doing, why are you doing it? And I say, it's because I want to change the world and make it better for you in, in this way, you know, and in travel, that's what I think about. So uh, towards that end, what's the change? You're saying that there's a change that's necessary. Define for me as best you can the changes that you feel we should be looking at or, or that are necessary. Well, I, the one that's, that hits me really close to home right now is 
if you think about the question, are we creating students who have in their life identified purpose or perhaps their passion and the ability to find opportunity where it doesn't obviously exist? Or are we creating students who are pretty content with just the status quo? Um, they're comfortable with, with waiting for somebody to tell them what to do, um, how it should be done, and give me a deadline uh, for when that work should be done by. Um, you know, I think there's probably a need for both, but as the world continues to change, um, we're going to need an awful lot more of the people who have said, this because I care about it, because I'm passionate about it, and I've, this is my purpose in life, um, more, much more so than the um, people who um, just want to fill a role, because odds are pretty good that those kinds of jobs are going to be automated uh, in, yeah. in the very near future. You know, in a previous episode, I was talking to a former student who is in social media, and she, when I asked her the question, what is it that you weren't prepared for? Uh, one of the things she said was that she came into work on her first day at, in, a, in, a, in the business world, right? And um, there, nobody told her what to do. And she just looked and was like, no one is going to tell me what to do. And she worked really hard to try and figure it out. But after nine months, she lost her job. And that was like a learning experience for her. So she, her story is awesome. She, she goes on to say that that propelled her to learn some new skills, right? So it sounds to me that you're talking about that. Like we're, we've got to prepare them for a world of work that um, where they're going to be a little bit more independent, where they're going to pursue their passions, where they're going to kind of know themselves, right? Yeah, it's going to be much more ambiguous than the world of work in the past. Right. Um, and, and perfect example you just gave. Yeah. Um, and the, the actual line that she said was to bring your whole self to work. And when you were talking, it sounds to me like you're saying, like to know who they are, to have a drive and a sense of, of mission and purpose so that maybe they bring their whole self to work. That's right. Yeah. And, and I think as a result, we're going to redefine what success is um, for these next generations of kids. Um, there's a lot of people today who would probably already agree with the fact that success is not simply based on your title or the amount of money that you make. But I think it takes people some time to get to that point where yeah. these next generations of kids are going to already be going into the workforce knowing that if I'm not fulfilled at a much deeper level than my title or how much money I'm making, then this is going to be the wrong job for me. Yeah. I definitely think that that's a growing trend in educational writing is to, to help people understand who they are, you know, and we, we've in the past talked about the idea of personal branding and the purpose and the mission that you're driving for. And I think some people think personal branding is something to do with like, your catchphrases and your, your pictures and social media. But I think personal branding is more about your interest set and your skill set in, in a lot of ways. And it sounds like that might be rolled into what you're talking about somewhat too. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, if you've ever seen Jamie Cassip uh, speak at a conference or give a keynote, I love his idea of, you know, don't ask kids what they want to be when they grow up, ask them what problem they want to solve. Um, you know, think about the fact that what if instead of uh, declaring your major in college, we declared what problem we want to solve when we're done with college? Um, we're going to be really shifting away from standard, like, you know, inputs, if you will, to focusing more on outputs. Um, mm -hmm. What kind of work you're producing, 
um, what kinds of changes are you making, whether they're big or small, um, having examples of that type of work is going to be far more valuable than saying, I took all AP classes and got fives on my exams, but you were so busy with school that you weren't also involved in clubs or social organizations or community involvement or things of that nature. Right. I, um, there's some programs, I think, that are starting along those lines. You know, I think there's schools that are looking at ways to do this. There's, there's examples of institutions that are making this entire shift, but there's on a smaller scale, um, there's the Global Scholars Program that, uh, for instance, Illinois and other states have kind of tried to put into place that asks students to work over the course of years on a globally focused solution to a problem, right? Um, but I, I think that those are, are like programs and sometimes it's like a small area of the focus. So towards, sure. towards that, if you're saying what problem do they want to solve, then what specific things in education do you believe? And I, I know you and I both don't want to criticize everything about the institution of education. We no. want to look at solutions, but like what are the barriers to moving forward in that way and in that type of work in education right now? You know, you're spot on. We don't want to point finger blame. I think teachers are doing absolutely the best that they can within the constraints that they have. There's a professor where I got my master's degree, um, J. Paul um, Gee, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. He Can you say that name one more time? Yeah, James Paul. And then the last name is G-E-E. I forget if it's G or Gee. But... Um, he, he, there's a great video on YouTube where he talks about in order for any kind of lasting change in education to take place, there has to be a shift in our priorities as a society. And that's going to start with parents. Um, now you never want to blame parents, um, for what's happening in schools, but at the same time, um, if, if parents want the exact same experience, uh, for their children that they had when they were in school, it's going to be very difficult for these kinds of like seismic shifts to take place where we're not focused on homework. We're not focused on test scores. We're focused on the holistic education of the child, the mental health, the physical health, you know, all of, all of the above. Um, that's going to be really hard to do if parents are expecting more of the same because that's what they're comfortable with. That's what they know because that's the experience that they had when they were students. So I think that's one area that we've got to really look at, like, how do we change that perception with parents as to what is a good education or a well-rounded education? This has come up before, because why would a parent envision some model of a system that they've experienced? Think about it. Every human in America, every living person who's gone to a school has a model. Uh, one of our earlier guests, Beth Holland, talked about how that's called the grammar of schools. Uh, another earlier guest, Martin Moran, talked about how communicating with parents, the shift that you're trying to create within a school is essential to his success. So again, I think we see that the parent understanding of what the future of education might bring is a huge, like a huge part of what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think along those lines in terms of, you know, we're talking about what are the barriers. Um, I think one of the biggest barriers, uh, if that's, if that's barrier one, barrier one, a, is that it takes so much time before you realize, well, did that change in education, did it work? Right. You know, it might take 10 or 15 years, um, like, like Martin Moran's school. Like, it's brilliant, right? But how will we know that it actually worked? Like, at what point can we say, like, this new model of education worked? 
is that going to be two years, five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road? I, I certainly don't know, but it, it's a question that we have to, to at least ask. So many ideas in there. If you're communicating with parents about how their students are doing in their experience, I think the number one way that we've communicated that before is grades. And I think that the average institution just uh, lets their kids, lets parents often know how they're doing through grades. And I think that there's many other, like it, it is so simplistic to say that that's the only way because there's other communication that goes out. Parents are being invited into schools. There's there's many other programs and curriculum nice to share what's going on. But ultimately, when I talk to parents about their experience, they are like, well, my kid gets good grades. Uh, the school yeah. is good and you've performed well, right? And so right now, I think that if you want to really boil it down, the, the summary of performance for students isn't, oh, look, I have possessed the skill oftentimes. It's that, well, I have straight A's or we have a great AP program or, or whatnot, you know? And so um, I guess part of making that change is to somehow convey a different level of growth, a different level of performance to parents that will help them to see uh, looking at their students experience differently. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something I, I think is uh, a lot of schools have gone to when they're going to like performance-based grading or standards-based grading uh, in their schools. Yeah. I, I think that's absolutely the driver of the shift that we're seeing right now away from grades, away from points-based grading is more of the competency model that you're referring to. Um, right. I, I think often of, uh, the, the third grade student who didn't understand fractions during chapter six. And at the end of chapter six, we move on, you know, next year, there are fourth grade student who never understood fractions and now they fall farther behind. You know, how do you make up that ground? Uh, you know, as a high school teacher who was maybe teaching math, you're thinking like, well, how can I teach them X concept today when in third grade, <laughs> they, they didn't learn the, the foundational concept. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I see one thing that's, that's been interesting to me. So I, I have four boys. Um, they all attend Montessori school. I find it fascinating that a lot of the shifts that are starting to take place or gain momentum in education are very similar to what we've been doing in Montessori education for a long time in terms of things are student-driven, student they're um, based on interest, they're based on competency. You know, students don't move on to the next topic and so they've shown like, yeah, look, I've mastered the, the, the concept or, um, you know, aspect of the curriculum. Um, I'm not moving on until I can show my teacher that I've mastered this thing before. it. So, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see how things pan out. And I think that technology can play a major role in these kinds of shifts because it can allow for us, rather than using data as an autopsy, of the learning that took place. A lot of times in schools, um, by the time we look at data, the opportunity for learning has already passed. The data that we're able to collect with some of the systems that are on the market today, you're able to use data on a day-to-day -day basis before that child falls behind the rest of their peers. I was working with the school in North Carolina last week and they started asking me about formative assessments and they said, data, data, data. And they, uh, a couple of teachers in a conversation said that we were doing all the assessments to get data. And I, I get kind of worried that we're reducing kids to data. And mm -hmm. my response, I, I, I've seen that response. I've believed that response. But what I've been starting to believe is that data, like if you think of assessments, 
as conversations or a chance to share and see and like a, like a, a check-in with a student. It's a chance to gather a snapshot of the child and their needs that then you can meet, right? So it's right. you can't think of data as a number because like the assessments that you're doing in classes on a daily basis, a lot of times are like, tell me how you reacted to, what was your experience of? On a scale of one to 10, how do you feel about your understanding? And that's a snapshot of a kid, right? Mm-hmm. So when I'm talking about that, I see now a very different understanding of what like uh, assessment can be and a snapshot of the kid. So to to let everyone know kind of um, how I I came to ask you to be on the show today. So I met you uh, at the, one of the early EdCamp Chicago It's probably like the second or third one that I organized. And we were meeting at the Sears center, a huge state. And uh, I walked into the room and you were teaching Twitter to a group of people. And you could tell like you were conveying to them something that I had been in that world of for four years and you had such conviction and passion for it. Right. And then I know that you were in education for a while and you went into uh, education, like you said, in a fortune 200 company. And then I, heard that recently that you switched and I was kind of surprised because I thought you were really liking your job. You were uh, enjoying the work, but that's how we, uh, where I want to go to today. Um, There's this problem of sharing information about students led you to kind of give up a job that you had and risk something at a startup. So tell me a little bit about the mission and the purpose of it, because I think it's a key part of change within schools. Um, So, so the, I guess the, the problem you could call it that we're trying to solve for is interoperability. And it's, it's a term that uh, many educators I talk to today are unfamiliar with, but they're familiar with the problem. They're just not sure what it's called or how to address it. And so what I mean by this is that, you know, any educator in their classroom today who has access to technology, they have students in their classroom that are creating or producing really rich student data um, across a variety of different platforms. Where the problem happens is that they're creating this data or producing this data in a silo. Um, You've got one platform for parent communication. You've got another platform for behavior management. You've got an LMS. You've got a data warehouse. You've got a, a, a blog. You've got a portfolio. And the problem as a teacher if I want to create a a holistic picture of my students and understand what all are they doing, who they are um, um, academically, I have to download data from six to eight to 10 different silos. And you darn near need to be a data scientist to crunch that data and make some kind of sense of it. It's funny you say that because our last school had an actual data, they called it the school improvement person. And that person worked harder than anyone I know to try to pull that data together. We were looking to try and find a way to pull our star data in. And, and we ended up buying a, a, a program specifically to manage that data and then to visualize it. And then we had the problem of once you have that data all together, how do you make it meaningful to teachers? Because if it's not easily digestible, you're putting a teacher who let's just all agree that teachers have so much on their plate and so many interactions with students to take care of that, like learning that whole new skill set can be really, really hard. So, um, I, and I remember her frustration when she would put together as much as she could for t- people and then share it with them, and they they struggled to read and understand it. Right. Right. What she, by the way, through a series of like Excel spreadsheets or Google Sheets. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, 
so basically, you know, a couple of years ago when they started this company, um, it was started by a couple of educators who were actually some of the first um, adopters of iPads in the classroom. And they were super excited like to get these iPads in their classroom, be one-to-one. They thought like, oh my God, this is going to be a panacea. There's so many opportunities here. And it was a complete and utter failure. And it wasn't because of iPads or the platform or this, that, or the other. It was that there was data all over the place about their kids and that the kids had to go to five different places to get their information, to be able to turn it in. The teacher had to go to all these different places, kind of like you just said, to be able to make sense of the data. And so um, there, for a long time, there's been this push to, for ed tech companies to make their platforms interoperable with each other so that these platforms would, would quote unquote, talk to each other. Um, we don't think there's enough incentive for ed tech companies to make their products interoperable with each other. There's just, it just is more time and, and resources and money that they have to invest and they don't necessarily get any more return on their investment. Timing in a way is everything. Um, in the beginning, there was some LMS companies that came out and they were super popular, but at the time there wasn't nearly as many ed tech platforms, um, where students are generating this data. So along comes Otis a few years later after these LMS companies, and we said, well, let's just take the six to eight different types of platforms that are most used by educators, and let's rebuild them from the ground up in a single platform. So rather than producing student data in six to eight different platforms, anything that's done on the uh, Otis student performance platform um, all of that work goes directly into our data warehouse and gets um, visualized uh, with our data analytics. So if you click on a single student, you see their behavior data, their communication data, their grades, their party data, their portfolio, their blog, any assessments that have been done, like formative assessments in the class. Um, it's all there under a single pane to see for your students. You're not clicking back and forth between six to eight different if we're, we're seeing the world as like swimming in a sea of data and we're trying to drink it all in, what the goal here is to consolidate and make that information readily available. See, when you were talking, my image is this, like the, the, the connection that teachers have electronically to the information that's available for students is often contained somewhere within either the gradebook or their attendance portal. In a perfect world, your gradebook and the attendance portal would be the same because you have one source of entry to gather all that information. And it that's sounds right. to me like what you're pairing now is all of the combined data on, on, that the school may possess uh, you had mentioned behavioral, you had talked about like scores and I'm guessing testing data just in yeah. one spot. So when you click on a dot, up comes the bio in information right. of the child. That's right. Yep. And in, in our, our COO um, tells a great story um, to kind of paint a picture here where, you know, he says, if, if you had, uh, when, when he was a student, he said, if you had me in math class, um, you would have thought I was the class clown because a couple of my buddies were in that class and we always like to goof around. Um, if you had had me in history class, uh, you would have thought I was really disengaged because I would sleep a lot and I was just kind of bored and I didn't participate. Um, but if you had me in English class, you would have thought I was an AP honor student rock star that um, every teacher in the school loves. But the problem is that math teacher doesn't see that side of him or the history teacher doesn't see that side of him. So when students are generating all of this data in a single spot, 
that travels with the student no matter where they go within the district. So, you know, if it's a middle school or a high school, you get every teacher gets the same perspective of that student. So then I can see, oh, wow, Keith really likes English class. So how can I present math to him through the lens of English so that it's more personalized to his learning styles? Right. When I opened up South Elgin High School the first year, the principal had this innovative way of getting us to do simply that. They would put uh, core groups together and once a week you would meet with uh, teachers, one teacher from every one of the different departments so that that communication could take place. Like what happens? What's this child like in this class? And it kind of goes back to this picture of the whole child. If we can serve the whole child, if we can see the whole child. So imagine the, I mean, number one, I think that was really forward thinking of your school to set aside that time for you guys to be able to do that. From what I can tell, that's not happening um, at scale. Um, Number two, imagine if you already had a really good understanding holistically of that student and you could spend that time rather than getting to know the student creating the powerful conditions for learning for that student and the other students in your classroom. I think what's, what's interesting is that um, having a portal where all that information is gets passed to the social patterns of teachers. Unless you're in a situation where you talk to teachers that way, unless you communicate, like any teacher who's been in the business for long enough knows that if you've, you've talked to another person, they give you some insight into a kid that helps you to work with that kid. That's an amazingly powerful experience and it sounds to me like this could be something that could, you know, extend that power to people, even if you don't, you may not have the time to interact with other teachers at that level on those subjects. And when you do get together with teachers, oftentimes it isn't that that you're talking about. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're really excited about what we're doing. You know, we're young and, and you know, you brought up a, a good point. You know, it seemed like I was happy where I was before, but working at a small startup and building something from the ground up was something that I've always wanted to do. It's something I've always wanted to be a part of. It's the, you know, like the the former company I was at was there was ten thousand employees and you felt like a tiny cog in a in a in a huge machine and you never felt like your impact was felt. Where when you're at a company of twenty eight people, <laughs> just about everything you do is felt uh, in one way or another. So so that is really cool. So this is kind of cool because this gives me the opportunity to switch over to one of the other themes that's part of our podcast, and that's the future of work. So tell me, uh, I'm guessing that in your in your organization that there's a significant amount of hiring, um, but that you're also looking for some specific skills. So in a group that in a in a workplace that's that small, what are you looking for a person who comes in to be able to do? What talents do you want them to have? Yeah. So. You know, it's obviously going to vary like developers. That's something I can't tell you much about. I mean, half of our employees are developers. Um, In terms of, you know, the other half of our company that are, um, you know, former educators and working closely with the schools, the kind of things that we're looking for is um, number one, um, can you work in an ambiguous environment? Um, Do you need to be told everything that needs to be done? Kind of like what the the person you had alluded to earlier, can you find value or opportunity where it doesn't obviously exist, right? Can you connect the dots um, of things that are just kind of disaggregated, um, but you're able to see like, oh, you know, if I connect this dot with this dot, then it creates this new opportunity that's mutually beneficial for everyone. Um, Having those kinds of skills and ability um, is crucial. I think 
part of it is also just a mindset um, or, or a disposition that some people have, right? That, that disposition of, you know, I'm not really sure what to do or where to go next, but I'm going to find something that's going to add value to the company. I'm going to lean towards action rather than waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. No, it makes a lot of sense. And it's actually something that I'm hearing a lot uh, from people, you know, and again, we, I come back to the same idea. How often was I creating unstructured environments where students had to connect the dots? Or, you know, was I doing, uh, like you said earlier, like doing an autopsy on the connected dots that I had connected? And I, I, I'm really interested in ways that we can have students lead towards action. How do you create a learning experience for not just high school students or junior high students, but elementary students where we, we get them to lean towards taking action on a topic or uh, engage? Or we're, how do we... Um, build that skill over time so that when a student comes out of high school, they're ready to jump into an environment that may not be structured, may not be clear or or with a set direction, like do this one thing, but then have Mm -hmm. them jump in and be able to say, I know how to act and engage towards this goal that we have. Right. Yeah. And and I think it's something that within our current constraints Mm -hmm. in the fact that we have to prepare kids for these tests that they have to take every spring. Right working within constraints like that, it's going to be really hard. Um, because I think the kinds of conditions that you and I are talking about that we would love to be able to create for students, it requires failing and learning from failure and maybe failing on multiple occasions. Um, that's something that a lot of teachers will say, I just don't have time for my students to fail three or four times before they figure something out. I've got to get through all this curriculum. I've got to get through all this content. Right. But there's got to be a shift away from content and curriculum to more skill-based, right. mastery-based learning. And I think if that those conditions exist, then you can kind of create those conditions. I was talking to a teacher in um, Winston-Salem, North Carolina last week, and they were talking to me about, yeah, the hard part about giving up the structure is that I can't guarantee an outcome. And they're in this position trying to guarantee outcomes. Um, but then we really got to the point where they they saw value, but they they ended by saying, I see value in allowing them to fail again and again and again to make them resilient and make them understand that there's something after failure and that failure isn't an endpoint. Like, oh, I failed. That's it. I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> right, right. And that's yeah, part of the process. Yeah. Right. And I think that that mindset is part of what you and many other guests on our, our show have been talking about lately. What kind of a school is going to look to this product that you've decided to like change careers to commit to, to, to show data differently, right? Like how is this different than just any other online grade system? And why would a school want something like that as part of the change that they're trying to create? So I think, I think what it boils down to is that anybody who works at our company um, would tell you that Otis plus ineffective teaching equals ineffective teaching. We simply are providing a platform for great things to happen. But unless you have a a school full of educators who have been empowered with the right types of training in professional development, meaning like, you know, we're not just showing them how to use technology, but we're showing them why we're using technology. You have an administration in place that has a vision like this and that it's a unified vision across the school, across the district. It can't be 
one principal's vision or one superintendent's vision that isn't communicated out across the entire district. Um, it's got to be something that everyone's bought into. And um, we can only do that by having a certain culture in place where um, teachers are also empowered to fail. They're empowered to take chances. They're empowered to take risks. So the kinds of schools that we need, I think, really start with um, the right types of administrators in that building to create those conditions for teachers. And then you talked about, like, beyond those conditions, you talked about the right types of training and the right types of methodology. So I'm just going to be super blunt. Tell me, throw out the types of learning and the types of techniques that you think that those leaders should be implementing that this tool would then be a great platform for. So I think, I think anything where the students are taking control of their learning. Um, it's not the teacher standing in the front of the class and saying, this week, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. It's putting students in a position um, where it's more project-based or problem-based types of learning activities that because the students are generating different types of data within the platform that we have, all of that data goes into a central location. And it doesn't matter if three kids do a portfolio, five kids do a blog post, um, other kids... Um, you know, respond um, in, in, you know, another uh, like feature functionality that we have built in um, that data is going into a single spot and the teacher can take learning that's more personalized and learning that's more based on skills um, rather than what content and curriculum do we have to cover uh, this week or this month. Right. Um, those kinds of things are, are what is going to make using a platform like Otis super successful. for teachers. So, you know, I, I think what's the use of individualized information and data about a student if you're not going to individualize your instruction, right? And I think that if you right. have a model, I mean, if you're going to break it down to the basic level, if you have a model of instruction where your instruction doesn't change, doesn't vary, um, and it becomes blanket for everybody, then you don't need anything other than blanket information. But as we move forward into a world where we have students and we see their value and their needs as different, and we're going to adjust to them, um, then it becomes absolutely essential for you to have an individualized portrait of what that student is capable of, what they aren't capable of, where their needs are, because then we can build a program around them. And I think that, you know, to me, one of the biggest barriers to change is oftentimes the infrastructure within schools. And I think that that was really what made me uh, interested in having a conversation with you and where your story is key to like moving schools forward. Are we going to build the structures? Are we going to build the electronic uh, tools for a teacher who lives in a world that individualizes to student needs? Right. 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 Yeah. Um, you know, if you think about it, like uh, along the lines, I think of what you're, what you're saying is, um, it, you know, it, let's say we're going to teach photosynthesis, right? In the traditional way of teaching photosynthesis would be, Here's the vocabulary words for the week. You know, write your definitions for the vocabulary words. Diagram. Here's a diagram. You know, label all the parts of a cell. Um, so on and so forth. And every kid's turning in the exact same work, right? right vocabulary right. words, diagrams. It, it's 30 of the exact same thing. And instead, what if we said, how is it that a plant can take convert water and sunlight into energy and then just say 
I don't know. You all have laptops. Figure it out. Now, you might tell me in a podcast. You tell me in a video. You might tell me in a blog post. Um, you know, there's going to be a multitude of ways that kids can convey their learning. And the cool thing is, rather than all of those outputs going into eight different silos, they go into one. Right. And then visualize exactly like you were just saying. So at the core of where this conversation ended up, I see that, you know, uh, we, if we give a student an answer, they have an answer. But if we give a student a problem, they have everything that they learned in order to gain and know that problem, including the interest in like the validity of the problem. And that's an environment that the shift between the answer and the, the path to an answer is an environment. So I think overall, that might be the, the takeaway from today's episode is how do we construct the mechanisms, the systems to build the environment that we need that's going to have students on their way to build solutions and solve problems? Absolutely. And I think to take it even a step further, everything that you just articulated there is transferable into this world of work that we don't really know what this future world of work is going to look like, right? Like we've got some ideas. We know that automation and artificial intelligence is going to be part of what this future world of work is going to look like. It's going to require the kinds of changes that you just, I, you know, in my own mind, in my own opinions, I think the way that we've done things for a long time was great to get us to where we are. But now that we know things are going to be different in terms of the, what this future world of work is going to look like, it's going to require the kinds of changes that you just Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Eric, for your time and for telling us about your experience and the journey that you're on. I, it sounds really exciting. But I know that there's also a lot of risk in it to jump on board to something that you believe in. But I think that, you know, jumping on board for what we believe in is kind of what we're trying to do for our students, too. So I think it's a good model for them as well. Yeah, thanks. One more time, tell us about the company that you work for, and then tell us about the conference that you're planning. Yeah, so um, I'll start with the conference. So the, there's a conference on November 1st in Schaumburg at the American Society of Anesthesiologists. It's this really cool building that was built two years ago. But anyone who's been on any kind of like uh, school um, design, classroom design, learning spaces, um, you could learn a lot just coming into this building, let alone the fact um, that, uh, what the conference is about is that there's basically five topics, uh, that we see all lend themselves really well to Otis. So there's project-based learning or problem-based learning. There's, um, standards-based grading or standards-based learning, however you want to phrase that one. Um, there's personalized learning. There's, um, data-driven instruction or using data to, you know, uh, guide your instruction and then um, personalized learning. So what we've done is we've identified five educators who are well-versed in each of those topics. And rather than having you know, a, a calendar or a schedule of you know, 50 different sessions, the person who's gonna talk about personalized learning, uh, they're gonna stay in their room uh, for the entire day, as well as each of the other five topics. And then that way, you can go to three of the five topics they're going to be discussed that day because we have three one-hour sessions uh, for the attendees uh, that day. And it's not going to be a sit-and-get presentation type of conference. Uh, you have the ability to ask, conver- ask questions, start a conversation with people in the room. So it has an ed camp kind of feel. Sure. There's some participant-driven conversation taking place. And then I think the icing on the cake, which is my favorite part of this, is that each one of these rooms where the sessions are taking place throughout the day, there's going to be one to two students. And no 
are going to be recording observations of what the adults are talking about, the educators in the room are talking about. And at the end of the day, we'll put those students on a panel and give them an opportunity to share their observations. And so we want to give these kids an opportunity to share. You know, we heard a lot of educators talk about X, Y, and Z, but as a matter of fact, we don't really care about that quite as much as you would think. We would prefer A, B, and C, right? Absolutely. So really kind of bringing it back full circle and giving students an opportunity um, to, to just share what they heard and also kind of share, you know, the ways that they like to learn. I mean, ultimately, they're the reason why we're there. Right? Absolutely. So where can people find more information about this conference if they're interested in attending? By the way, it's Schaumburg, Illinois. And yes. um, where might they go to find more information about the conference? The name of the conference is a conversation on modern measures of learning. The best place to go is Illinois Computing Educators website. And yeah, you'll be able to register um, for you and ideally, you know, bring a couple of colleagues. And um, I think overall, it's going to be a really exciting day for people to have conversations more than like sit there and have our brains filled with information. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Eric, for sharing your ideas and your thoughts and for letting us know about the information for your conference. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. So We've Been Thinking is sponsored by the EdTech Teacher Summit. Join EdTech Teacher in Boston November 5th through the 7th, featuring keynote speaker Dr. Diana Howard, whose career focuses on intelligent technologies that must adapt to and function within a human-centered world. For more information or to register for the conference, please go to ettsummit.org.